This is my comeback story. This is my comeback story. This is Trey Lewis with Good Landing Recovery, and you're listening to The Comeback. So good to be here on The Comeback with my friend Carl. How are you, sir? Hey, Trey. Thanks for having me. It's an honor, truly. Some of you may not be aware of of my story and celebrate recovery and the impact that it had on my life. But whenever I was in California, while I was serving in the air force in 2005, when Jesus was starting to get a hold of my life and to deliver me out of addiction, um, I reached out to a local chaplain and I was looking for more of a traditional 12 step fellowship and asked him if he knew where any meetings were and, um, by divine mistake, he gave me a connection uh, to a pastor that I didn't even know was a pastor at the time, but that was connected with Celebrate Recovery. I'd never heard of Celebrate Recovery um, to my knowledge. And um, I, I remember I couldn't drive because I'd gotten a DUI, so I couldn't drive on base for, I think, a year is what they had, were, were one of my consequences from this DUI while I was in the military. And uh, so this guy came and picked me up and was taking me to the meeting. And about halfway back, I asked him what he did for work. And he told me he was a pastor. And I thought, oh, my gosh, how do I get out of this car? And I went there and I went to this Celebrate Recovery, this 12-step fellowship that was Christ-centered. And it was there that I realized that these men had something and these these members of of Celebrate Recovery had something that, that I didn't. And that was what started my journey. So I'm forever grateful to celebrate recovery. I know that you're actively involved with that and have your own story. And if you would just share with us what you're doing. Yeah, Trey, thanks for that. And we do love celebrate recovery. And uh, currently, for those that are listening for that that have not met me, I'm Carl Redette, and I'm the associate pastor at Hebron Church, uh, responsible for our Celebrate Recovery ministry. And I've been actually in Celebrate Recovery for the last seven and a half years. But my story starts long before the last seven and a half years and before I'm, I'm sitting here in front of you and, and sharing our stories together. Um, I was born in New York some 42 years ago to a hardworking Catholic couple, and they moved here to Georgia right before my second birthday and grew up. I was that, that goody-goody student, honestly, through school, um, got pretty much all A's most of my, most of my childhood, even into high school. I uh, met my future wife in high school. We started exchanging notes. And for those of you who are in the Gen Z or millennial generation, that's before we had texting. We actually passed paper notes. And this was in driver's ed, actually. And and we arranged our first date on October 29th, 1993. I have a thing with dates, so you'll just know I can quote exact dates. Um, <clears throat> we started dating, and I was head over heels just from from day one. Um, life proceeded on. I was, um, uh, doing pretty good in school. The one thing I did struggle with on the inside is, is I was exposed to pornography in, in the seventh grade and a friend of mine, uh, stuffed something in my, in my backpack. This is obviously well before the internet was widely available. And from that point on, I was really struggling with that, with that sin. And that was the thing I kept between me, myself, and I for the better part of 15 years um, from that point forward. So, uh, But in high school, again, on the outside, I looked good. I was playing golf. I was making good grades. I had friends. Um, I did go through an awkward period in middle school where I was picked on and bullied, which I did carry that pain into my adulthood. And we'll talk a, bit, a little bit about how Celebrate Recovery helped with that. Uh, 
but high school we uh, did well and um, went and went to Georgia Tech. I was actually planning on going to another school. Notre Dame is where I was planning on going because I grew up Catholic and was going to Catholic Church every single Sunday. And but Georgia Tech offered me a scholarship, and plus my future wife uh, was going to University of Georgia. So being in South Bend, Indiana, costing forty thousand a year was didn't make sense versus free at Georgia Tech. So. Um, I didn't ever drink in high school, didn't ever do drugs or any of that stuff. Um, uh, but my first party at Georgia Tech, I, I had a Budweiser. That was my first drink I ever had. And, and it, it was like, eh, I didn't, I didn't really remember it being that great. But I do remember my first drunk. It wasn't much long after that. And I felt like I was full for the first time. So I got drunk in uh, my freshman year. And I'd been around social drinking my whole life. That was rarely ever out of hand. My family had alcohol at a lot of family functions. Um, and most of the time it was pretty tame and just, you know, had some beers and wine. And, you know, we always had our toasts at holidays and shot glasses, you know, and rarely did people get really drunk. So I kind of saw alcohol as a positive thing growing up. I just waited till I was in college to, to go off the deep end. So when I started drinking, I was I felt full. That pain and shame of what I was struggling with and from a pornography perspective seemed to go away. Um, things that I was disappointed in myself about seemed to go away. The bullying pain from that I never dealt with seemed to go away. So um, I started turning to alcohol to cope at, at age 19. And that led to a 10-year battle with alcoholism. Um, my wife and I, we got pregnant our freshman year of college. Uh, so we got to come home from spring break. I got to tell my parents, Hey, I lost my scholarships because my grades stunk the first two terms and you're going to be grandparents. So that was a really fun spring break, 1997. Um, I went off the deep end for the next five months drinking like crazy. And then finally God got my attention and said, you need to come back and do the right thing. Uh, so I commit, recommitted my life to, to Chandler and, um, decided, you know what, I'm, I'm excited about this, this dad thing, change majors to something a little bit, uh, easier. I was actually a chemical engineering major at the time, changed to industrial engineering and, um, finished strong at tech. Honestly, my wife and I, we, we made it work. We had, uh, her mom and my, my parents, uh, were very, very much involved in our lives and very generous. We, we ended up moving back home for a while, Davis, our son, was born in October of that year, 97. Um, we finished school by alternating terms of, and days of the week our classes were and doing some work terms versus school terms. And I graduated with honors in 2000. And then she graduated the following year in 2001. And then I started off at Chick-fil-A, at the Chick-fil-A corporate office. Um, again, I was drinking at this point now moderately, not alcoholically really. Um, when I did graduate, though, I did drink every day for about 30 days. Um, to celebrate, I played golf every day and drank beer every day. Uh, and then I started working at Chick-fil-A and, and started my career. And my career took off very quickly. Got a couple of early promotions, had a team built around me, started working in there, uh, managing our, our data systems. And um, number two son, Jackson, came along in 2001. We adopted our special needs daughter a year later. She was actually, she's actually three months younger than Jackson, but we brought her home for her first birthday. At this point, my wife was working at a medically fragile foster home for special needs kids, and that's where we found Tori. And then Carter, my youngest, was born in 2004, so by the time I was 26, I had four kids, a very busy life at work, and just, just things were crazy. But during that time, really between when we brought Tori home and when Carter was born, my, my alcohol use started going up. 
Um, bills were starting to pack us, pile up. I was not coping with life as well as I should have. Things weren't going exactly the way I had planned. I had planned to be a Chick-fil-A operator running one of their restaurants. And things were just starting to slowly spiral. I was making enough money to make it float and to not hit my bottom too quickly. Chandler stopped working outside the home. She wanted to stay home with our kids. So we made that work. And I wasn't going to church at all. So really at Chick-fil-A, when I started Chick-fil-A, my priorities were, were work number one, kids number two, Chandler number three. And then if I thought about God, he was kind of, you know, down near the bottom. Because um, I was working at Chick-fil-A, which was like working at church, right? That's right. <laughs> um, but over the time, alcohol started weaving its way up its priority list till it became number one. And it was in the spring of 2007. Um, I was actually one of the last two candidates to land a, a Chick-fil-A restaurant and um, got a DUI. I left my buddy's apartment and we had watched the Braves game together and I blacked out and by the grace of God. I, I rear-ended a car, but by the grace of God, no one was hurt. Um, and that could have been really, really serious because it was on the highway. Um, spent the night in jail and I was too scared to call my wife, called my dad. Um, they called Chandler and told her what was going on. And she told me something I'll never forget. She said, if you ever drink again, you're not welcome to live here anymore. Cause see earlier that year before I got the DUI, I had sworn off drinking several times. She had finally figured out that, Hey, when I disappeared at night, cause I would disappear at night, either go to the bar with my buddies or go to Walmart and just drink 20 beers on the way home. It was just a constant. She thought I was having an affair. I was having an affair. It was just with a case of beer. Um, so she finally figured out in January of that year what was going on um, and said, you can't drink again, but we're trying to shoot. She, was, she wasn't uh, educated on recovery either. She thought if I went to recovery, it might hinder this whole get on Chick-fil-A operator gig. But when it turns out, it probably would have helped now that I know what recovery does. Um, so we didn't go into recovery. I just tried to white knuckle it for the next four months, and I turned into be my worst bender ever. Kept swearing off drinking, kept going back, kept swearing it off, kept going back. So she was done. And about 12 hours later, I hit my bottom, went to AA the next day, um, and picked up a white ship and started my recovery journey. Um, three months into that, uh, I had a few guys in our AA group, because uh, I didn't know about Celebrate Recovery at the time. I'd been going, I grew up in the Catholic Church. I didn't know anything about Celebrate Recovery. Um, three months into that, a few of the guys in my AA group said, hey, let's... Um, uh, we're going to start a Bible study. We know you're kind of into spiritual things a little bit more than the average AA person. So I said, sure, let's let's do it. Maybe I can teach you something because I worked at Chick-fil-A, right? And it's like <laughs> working at church again. Because I had made the decision. I had I had, I had done all the Catholic checkbox things um, in my faith. I had done, I had said the sinner's prayer multiple times, whether it was a, a TV pastor or a Chick-fil-A devotional. I mean, I'd done all these checkbox things, but it wasn't in my heart. I knew Jesus in my head. I knew God was in my head my whole life, but he was always very distant. I had not surrendered him as Lord. And we literally opened up Proverbs, and I realized it was it was probably Proverbs 3, but I honestly don't remember the scripture we were reading. And it was like the Spirit just said, Carl, you don't know me as Lord. So that night, I went home, and this was September 2007. Um, actually, we're a couple of days away from that anniversary. I think it was the 10th. Wow. Um, I got on my knees, and it was part of the third step of AA, where we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. And that's when I surrendered. I said, all right, God, you've got my life. This is it. I'm surrendering to you. Um, and then from there, um, just started becoming very willing to take advice from whomever would give it to me. We had over $100,000 in unsecured debt um, on top of 
you know, typical car and mortgage notes. Um, cause I had wrecked, I had wrecked our finances in my addiction. Um, I weighed 250 pounds, had 42 inch waist. So I was massively overweight from all that beer I was drinking. So I started losing weight and getting in shape. We started going to Hebron that Christmas Eve. Um, and just God really started tra- turning our life around. Um, started tithing, even though we had this mountain of debt. We're like, no, we're supposed to be faithful and giving God our first fruits. And that later that year, he gave me a big promotion and a big raise at Chick-fil-A. So our life started heading in the right direction. And then over the next six, seven years, um, you know, we were faithful. We went to Romania on mission trip. We started, we, we actually started teaching Bible studies because the Lord gave me a, a teaching gift, you know, upon, upon uh, giving my life to him. Um, my son though came down, my oldest son came down with autoimmune disorder. So that took us off our financial plan and took us off our typical plan. But, uh, six years of treatment later, he was finally in remission. Um, my daughter, my special needs daughter has mental illness on top of everything else that she has going on. So we've had struggles with that. So we've had a lot of, a lot of struggles in our life that have kept us from what we thought was the ideal path when I made the decision. But throughout all of that, I was able to uh, continue to focus on where God wants me to go. For the most part, I had my struggles, had my battle with depression in there. Um, but in 2014, we came forward um, at the end of church service and said, all right, God, we feel like you're calling us to full-time ministry. And the pastors at Hebron at the time, um, one of them said, Carl, anybody can serve where you're serving right now, but you have a unique testimony. Seven years sober at the time, you should be in Celebrate Recovery. Because I had gone to Celebrate Recovery uh, many times before then, and it just didn't feel right because it wasn't AA. And it took, this is, this is so typical of us in recovery. All it took was the pastor saying, Carl, it's not supposed to be AA. It's supposed to be Celebrate Recovery. Because the funny thing was, is for, for a while, Chandler kept saying, seeing the Celebrate Recovery announcements at church, why don't you go? It's Jesus in recovery. What's not to love? And sure enough, I get in. I'm like, yes, this is where I needed to be. I should have been here years ago. So I jumped in, as we always do, feet first, uh, into the deep end. Um, and that's how I got into Celebrate Recovery and got into a step group and finished that step group in that first year. Started finding myself in, in some leadership roles to lead share groups and lead step groups and saw the potential for Celebrate Recovery, not just for folks like me who struggle with alcohol and, and lust. Uh, as, as I would introduce myself at a Celebrate Recovery meeting, it's, hey, I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, finding victory over alcohol, lust, codependency, and depression, and my name's Carl. Um, it really is. I started discovering that really is for everybody. We used to say that in AA, you know, recovery can be for everybody, but AA has a principle of it's for those who want to stop drinking. Celebrate Recovery, it's for all lives, hurts, habits, and hangups. So I learned that there. I love that. That that's just one thing that I love about Celebrate Recovery is that this process of of you know which which I believe the steps are the best systematic process to be able to walk out recovery and you know it just gives a opportunity for for everybody to be able to do that. So I love that about it. You have faced some real adversity, and I feel like that you hit it you know in a couple of lines in this podcast on, you know, just what you face. I mean, six years with your son, mm-hmm. um, you know, with your daughter. I mean, so many people, you know, when we think about the audience and, and people on the front end of this journey and parents and, um, you know, you, you, you get in here where they talk about a pink cloud or whatever it might be, um, like, like, like we're not exempt from life and, and life is, is going to be there. I mean, can you just kind of share 
because you know we we talk about like comeback stories, but but there's a there's a real. I mean, I don't know if I'd say there's a like a real science, but 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 steps to position yourself, you know, so that you know we become part of the minority that actually makes it. Want that you know one day to be flipped to where it's the majority, but right now the minority. I mean, talk to us about that and facing adversity and and not going back. Well, that's I mean it's it's a great question. Uh, sometimes I wonder myself, how am I one of the lucky ones who one was willing and two um, made it through? I mean, this has been a, a, a nearly impossible year. The last, you know, here we are in the middle of 2021. You talk about the last 18, 20 months. It's been some of the most difficult that anybody who's alive today has seen. And um, how how did how did God enable me to to walk through this without? going back and picking up a drink um, when that was my go-to play for so many years, for a good 10 years that that's all I was doing was turning alcohol. <clears throat> I would say there's several factors that um, for us, one, um, so on the family, I'll say something to the families first. So if you've got someone who is struggling in addiction or struggling in whatever area of hurts, habits, or hangups and, and, uh, the key there is to, like my wife said, she said, if you were ever drink again, you're not welcome to live here anymore. Um, and I knew she was serious because the way she said it and how she presented it, I knew she was serious. So some of the hardest things we can do as family members, um, and we're kind of dealing with our daughter, although it's not an addiction issue, um, and we can talk about that, but it's drawing those hard boundaries lovingly, but having good, healthy boundaries. Look, if you're not welcome, you're not willing to get help. I want you to get help, but if you're not willing to get help, then I can't have you in my life right now. I'm not saying it's a never thing, um, and that's some of the hardest things that we can do to those that we love is to say something like that. Um, so her having that hard boundary, and I knew she was serious, was a motivator for me early on. I mean, I went to AA to get to get my wife happy with where I was at, and also my mom. My mom was also pushing me too. Um, and I always say, I went in AA to get them off my back, and I realized I'm an alcoholist, alcoholist just like everybody else that's in here. You know, I may have not drank the exact same substances or done all the things, or maybe I was worse than a lot of people that were in there too, but I needed to be there. Um, the second thing is really willingness. Um, someone, the ones that are successful, in fact, the big book talks about this, and even, even Jesus addresses it when he heals the guy at the pool, like, are, do you want to get well? You know, there's got to be a sense of willingness for those that are in recovery and that want to get help. They have to be willing. And for whatever reason, the Lord granted me some willingness that sometimes people don't necessarily have. Um, if someone is going into recovery just to check off a court thing, check off a legal thing, that can be an entryway into long-term recovery. But if ultimately it doesn't lead to that, then it's not going to be successful. So willingness. And, and those that are, again, back to the families, pray for willingness mm -hmm. for those. That's one of the biggest things you can pray so for. Because um, <clears throat> willingness is so key. Um, and I don't know how it's generated necessarily other than good, healthy, loving boundaries by the loved ones. And another message of the loved ones, too, is, is I, mean, I know I'm bouncing around a little bit here, but... Um, when Chandler saw me as a sick person trying to get well, not a bad person trying to get good, so good. that was huge to our family's success. Um, I think, and sometimes, unfortunately, and I'm, I'm a pastor in the church, I think a lot of the time in the church we see addiction and hurts and habits like this as a, a, 
a bad person trying to get good when it's really someone who has got something else going on. Alcohol wasn't my problem. It was all the things I was drinking over was my real problem. Now, can I drink again? No. You know, I've already crossed that threshold where I can never go back and drink again. But uh, when someone can see an addict as a sick person trying to get well, the whole, it, the whole mindset changes. I can help this person. Or maybe I can't help this person, but I can lead them. You know, just like someone who has cancer, you take them to a doctor. Today, someone who has COVID, let's go get them the help they need to get well. Um, so when we can see it that way, we can be a better help to those who are in addiction. Um, and then those who are in addiction too, that also helps. That, hey, I'm, I'm sick. I need to get help. Because when, when I saw myself as just a bad person and keep screwing up, all, the, all it was was more shame pouring on myself because I would, I would swear off and I would mean it. I would tell my wife, I'm not going to drink again. I would mean it. Two weeks later, I'm drunk. I'm lying to her again and I'm finding a way to go out and get drunk. I meant it that I was going to stop. But when I saw myself as a sick person trying to get well, it's like, okay, I need to get well. That means there's something out of my control that I need help. I need to access. I need to access a power greater than myself to get better. Just like we do when we go to medicine. You know, we are accessing a power greater than ourselves to get better. But here in addiction, we're accessing a higher power and in celebrate recovery, that higher power is Jesus Christ. So good. So good. Well, um, the only thing I want to confront you on is, um, where you didn't walk through adversity instead of becoming a chemical engineer, you became an industrial engineer. It's where you really slacked in your life. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it, 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 it's also when, when I think about the, the trouble, that the the intellectual has with recovery you know we we just i mean obviously you know addiction alcoholism doesn't discriminate and when you know we you know you see the the high level professional that comes in the the physician the attorney you know the person that's done really well somebody that maybe graduated from georgia tech and wanted a full scholarship to georgia tech that you get to this place where you're thinking like this substance right here, this, you're, you're telling me that friends of mine who I know that I'm smarter than, that, I, that I'm doing better than in, in life, um, it, that, that I can never go out and have a couple of drinks again, you know, or the guy that just can't believe that this little bag of dust is controlling their life and you know and I I think the pride that can often come with so much success in one area I mean I realize the the small percentage that ever gets a shot to become an operator of Chick-fil-a early promotions and all of those things where you're just seeing this track record of success and then you run against this brick wall I mean can can you just recall you know some of those days and just overcoming you know, those hurdles or did it make sense real quick? I think if we're truly honest with ourselves in addiction, we know that we're out of control earlier than we really think we are. And that's why honesty is one of the principal, you know, principle or step one things that we have to cover. If we're, if we can be honest with ourselves, we have a shot. And I remember days when I would say, why do I, I think I'm an alcoholic now I'm drinking without control. Um, in fact, I can go back to the day I probably crossed that bridge where I went too far. It was very early in my drinking, actually. It was a year into it. I remember walking back from a fraternity party with my best friend at the time. We were rooming together at Georgia Tech, and we had a 30-pack of Miller Lite because that's what, that's what you drink in college. You drink cheap beer and lots of it. 
And I remember we split it like right down the middle. He had 15 beers. I had 15 beers at a fraternity party, each of us. And I remember walking back, most people would be stumbling back, but we could drink a lot and telling him, man, I could go for 15 more right now. Half joking, but also half serious. And in the doctor's opinion, this is what got me into AA, that I read the doctor's opinion said they cannot develop, uh, they cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. And that made, I immediately went back to that moment at Georgia Tech and realized, man, I've been an alcoholic since that day. Because wow. that's when I was, who needs 15 more beers after you had 15? Most people are on the floor, like yeah. passed out at right. 15 beers. Day recovery. But that's where I was. Um, and what I've learned is, um, the more resources, material resources you have in this world, you can hide it a lot more. Like you can, you can successfully manage an addiction because you have more money or more access to things. Whereas someone who doesn't, they hit their bottom a lot faster because they just, they run out of money. They run out of people who can help them. So they find themselves on the street or in jail or whatever. Um, the executive doesn't hit his or her bottom as fast just because they have access to a lot more resources or they might be exposed. People say, Hey, you just need to go get therapy. Well, therapy's great. Not knock a therapy. I've been to therapy because I needed it. I hit depression for a while, but ultimately what it is, is being honest that this thing is controlling me. But I think most people in there can get that on some level if they stop long enough to be honest with themselves. You know, for me, um, and, and towards the end of my addiction, I would literally, this would be my thought process. And this is the insanity of it all. That's the other thing people need to recognize is there's insanity. And I think most people who are honest with themselves do see insanity in whatever behavior they're struggling with. Uh, I would pull into a gas station. I would leave the Chick-fil-A home office because the operator thing obviously didn't work out because I got the DUI. They said, you can still work here. You just can't get a restaurant. So Chick-fil-A is gracious enough. Um, but before all that happened, I'm pulling at a gas station. I'm like, God, help this to be my last drunk. That's literally what was my prayer. Again, I told you, I believed in God my whole life um, in my head. But I would say, God, let this be my last drunk. How insane is that? Go pick up my 12-pack of beer and pack of smokes or whatever, and then consume that on the way home from work. Insanity, right? I so think about a Chick-fil-A employee smoking cigarettes. <laughs> with the Chick-fil-A cup, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, so it, yeah, it was just insanity. Um, but I think a lot of people, like, even if you cause celebrate recovery, we like to say is, is for all life's hurts, habits, and hangups. And whether it's pornography, drugs, or alcohol, those are obviously common things people think of in recovery right now, especially in church circles, but it might be anger. You might not be using alcohol or drugs or whatever to cope with life, but you might have these absolute rage moments and you're, and you, when you're done and you calm down, you might be thinking to yourself, how do I do this all the time? Why do I keep doing this? It's because there's some hurt that you haven't dealt with in your life that you're turning to anger to cope. Or maybe it's, why did I go eat an entire bag of Oreos or an entire pint of ice cream? I've used food to cope too. We had some adversity when we, we had some, uh, we had to take on four extra kids that we loved dearly. Um, but it was stressful and I coped that year cause we had eight kids in our house with ice cream um, so why do we do that? It's because we haven't dealt with that hurt. And that's why recovery works when you are doing what you're, you're getting honest with yourself. What is really going on in my heart? What am I really dealing with here? 
what is this substance trying to make me not feel or not remember or not think about or this pattern of behavior, shopping, gambling, you name it, all these things. Um, but even just honestly, people now on social media lashing out, that's another form of behavior that people probably should find recovery for because they're saying things online that they should, would never say in person. So there's all these things that we deal with in life. Um, and hitting our bottom comes down to, like you said, I'm broken. You know, I'm, I'm, I can't do this anymore. So reaching out to God and saying, I can't, um, I need your help. Or like anybody in, in scripture, like the, the woman with a bleeding problem, if I can just touch him, she knew she'd be cured. She was at her bottom. She was at her, her, her wit's end and went to Jesus, touched him, and she was healed. Yeah. And similar recovery helps bring people to that point of, here's your solution. God, <clears throat> like the second principle says, earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to him, and that he has the power to help me recover. Wow. That's so strong. There is so much good stuff that you just unpacked. I know there is so much more in you. I feel like that we need to do part two through ten so that we can probably just get just just tap into a little bit of it. But uh, thank you so much for your investment today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Definitely, man. Let's do it again soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Trey. Guys, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. It is a privilege and an honor to be able to serve you. If you or someone in your family is struggling with addiction, please give us a call. It's 770-570-7422.